The Chinese government's firm hand on their country's economic reins can be beneficial in some circumstances, like when you need to goose the value of your currency or instruct businesses to do more of some things, less of others. Other governments have levers they can pull and buttons they can push to accomplish roughly the same thing, but those mechanisms are typically at least somewhat removed from the actual variables they want to tweak to accomplish that change more hands-off and indirect manipulation. The Chinese government, on the other hand, can say jump, and most business leaders will clamor to be the first to ask how high. And that's mostly because the government has the ability to run them out of business, imprison their CEOs and other leadership, take away all their money, the businesses but also those running the businesses, their personal wealth, and generally make life difficult or impossible for anyone who doesn't toe the line. As a consequence of this dynamic, the Chinese government is generally able to set the tone of their economy using an upgraded version of top-down concepts that were used more clumsily by earlier authoritarian governments, like those of the Soviet Union. China's top-down setup interacts more cleanly with the rest of the world, and their direct involvement basically just gives them more levers to pull and buttons to push, those mechanisms plugged directly into the relevant variables, rather than those mechanisms being separated from those who wish to tweak them by several protective layers of other people and organizations and regulations. These tools haven't always been used heavy-handedly, but the current Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, has been especially enthusiastic in utilizing them to rewire the Chinese economy to better suit his idea of how things should function. One major change has been a pivot away from the let's build massive companies and mint a bunch of billionaires to show the world we can do capitalism better than they can approach towards something a little more equitable. A bunch of wealthy people were coerced into giving away a bunch of their money, more social programs were implemented, and entire industries like the video game industry were gutted and hobbled with new rules meant to reduce the amount of games young people in China are allowed to play. So games, sexually explicit materials, anything considered to be non-pure and not productive, essentially, has been stripped down and more heavily regulated to make room for the opposite under President Xi. One economic facet that the government has been a little more hands-off with, though, is the country's fairly vital real estate sector. Real estate in China is even more symbolic and culturally central than in other regions. In the United States, for instance, we are sold on the idea of the American dream, which traditionally includes a house of one's own as a milestone along the way from childhood to fully accomplished adulthood. And not being able to live up to that, even if you don't necessarily want a house, and the responsibility and expense that can come with such a purchase, can seem weird and off-putting. Not walking that path is a bit deviant, even if perhaps less so today than it has been historically. In China, though, one's options are severely constrained if one doesn't purchase property. Real estate in China has long been associated with financial stability and personal well-being. As a result, many parents will funnel their life savings into down payments for their children on a home, hoping that will allow them to become wealthier than the previous generation. And many women are culturally pressured to not get married to someone who doesn't own or can't afford to buy an apartment or other home base. 
There are a variety of rationales given for what's become a fairly hard-fast economic filtering mechanism in Chinese society, but the predominant explanation is that because there are so many more men than women in China, the consequence of decades of a one-child policy and a culture that has historically favored male children, which meant most families, if given the option, would have a male child and perhaps even abort a female child. Because of that imbalance, which reached epic proportions in the early 2000s, with 120 men for every 100 women, it made sense for women in a dating market, where they are more scarce and in demand, to raise their standards, including their economic standards. Thus, it became a truism that unless you could afford to buy and own a home, you didn't really have a chance on the marriage market. And that's led to all sorts of issues, socially and interpersonally and culturally. But it's also caused some serious economic disturbances, directly and indirectly. One of the key direct economic issues caused by this trend is that real estate companies were incentivized to build, 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 and to just keep building as many apartments as they possibly could, with the full knowledge that there would always be more people desperate to buy what they were building, and that potential buyer's parents would invest their entire life savings in a down payment if their children couldn't afford to purchase their own home solo. This led to eventual overproduction of properties, which in turn sparked rampant real estate speculation. People buying up apartments that hadn't even been built yet in order to live in them, or in some cases to resell them for more later. One Chinese property development company, Evergrande, sparked a substantial real estate crisis beginning in 2020 after implementing a diversification strategy that resulted in their buying up enough raw land to build housing for something like 10 million people. That gamble, all that investment, might have paid off had they not also decided to expand into a bunch of other ventures, including bets on theme parks, energy installations, electric vehicle companies, and a slew of other businesses that somewhat puzzled their investors and debtors. And that debtor component is important, because although Evergrande at the time seemed like they could do no wrong, and that there was nothing but jewel-encrusted sunshine and rainbows in their future, they were taking on a lot of debt very quickly, and those investments were heavily leveraged, meaning they used some of their own money, but mostly debt to pay for all of it. And so while they were slinging tens of billions of dollars at efforts to build artificial islands and buying up football or soccer teams, they were also selling apartments in buildings that hadn't been built yet. They started selling so-called wealth management products in late 2021. And these were basically something like bonds where you pay them for one of these products and they tell you you'll get a super high rate of interest on your investment. And this wasn't an unfamiliar thing to do, mostly by banks in China, beginning around 2016. But these assets were also uninsured. So if they weren't paid off because the company behind them went under, that represented a full loss for the investor, not something that the government would typically come in and pay out on. As it turned out, this was just one effort of many by the higher-ups at Evergrande to essentially create a pyramid scheme that would allow them to pay off all those earlier debts with new debt. 
and each new round of debt became more and more speculative, but claimed higher and higher interest rates for those on the money-providing end. Folks who bought these wealth management bond-like products sold by Evergrande were promised, sometimes by bosses at the company, at Evergrande itself, who pressured their subordinates to purchase a bunch of these monetary products. They were promised around 10% a year in interest, which would be a really good buy if it actually paid out. Eventually, though, this big pyramid they were building collapsed as the Chinese government introduced new regulations related to debt in the country's property sector. Basically, companies were not allowed to massively over-leverage their projects, and the bottom of this scheme began to fall out from under them. Even though Evergrande was generally considered to be too large to fail, in the sense that it would be bailed out if anything really bad happened, and was thus thought of as a good bet, even when it looked like a house of cards on the verge of collapse, in 2021 it began to miss payments to its debtors. It scrambled to start selling off assets, raising a few billion dollars by selling parts of itself to rivals, and by January of 2022 it was pulled from the stock market. Some of its remaining assets were frozen, and a slew of other institutions, ranging from other real estate companies to businesses that actually built the buildings on their properties, to financial institutions in China and abroad, most of which had exposure to Evergrande through purchasing their monetary products or providing them with credit or other types of investment, they also took a big financial hit. As of August 2022, Evergrande has failed to come up with a debt restructuring plan that it promised regulators that it would make last year, and the ripples of its earlier collapse have continued to plague the Chinese real estate market. One of the more tangible and newsworthy consequences of all of this has been the widespread and still-growing boycotts of mortgage payments from housing customers. Basically, folks who bought apartments and other housing from Evergrande and other impacted companies before those apartments and houses were built are not seeing much movement on the construction of those homes. In some cases, the homes they planned to move into and have already paid for, they just don't exist yet. Sometimes there are skeletal building structures that are not complete, that have no windows, no electricity. Sometimes where their homes will someday be is still just raw, largely undeveloped land. And while the people who bought these properties are meant to keep paying their mortgages in the meantime, regardless of all of this delay, they're not. Which is pretty wild, considering how unusual and heavily punished boycotts and protests often are in China. It's disruptive, and disruptive behavior is not appreciated there. And some of the people involved in these standoffs have already been punished. But that hasn't stopped the larger movement against the excesses and abuses and failures of this aspect of the larger Chinese economy. The first week of October 2022, the Chinese government told banks to provide some of the largest entities in the real estate sector with at least $85 billion in financing, and probably more than that, in an effort to shore up the sector and prevent further damage and negative ripples throughout their economy. This has led to a brief surge in stock valuations for relevant entities on the Chinese market, and it may even help reduce the damage caused by Evergrande and its ilk in the preceding years, though it could also lead to more such damage in the future if the lesson that these entities and their leadership learn from this adventure is that the government will eventually bail them out if things go sideways, and that they are, thus, in fact, too large to fail as many suspected a few years back when this problem was originally noticed. 
What I'd like to talk about today are some other housing market issues being seen around the world right now, especially in the United States, and what we might expect in this space in the coming months. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled, There's an Unusual Thing Happening in the Housing Market. A housing bubble is a specific type of asset bubble. And we've seen all kinds of asset bubbles over the years, from tulips in the Netherlands in the 1630s, to South Sea Company shares in 1720, to the dot-com bubble in the 1990s through the early 2000s. The inciting forces and cultural contexts that inform these bubbles varied pretty greatly, as did their scale and, in some cases, their actual scale versus proverbial scale, as some researchers think may have been the case with the tulip bubble. It became grander and grander with each retelling, but might have been a fairly moderate bubble in real life. But regardless, the general concept of these bubbles, whatever their size and truth or mythology, were the same. An asset, something you can buy and which typically has some sort of value, as opposed to a liability which has anti-value, which costs you something to own it, an asset's price rises and rises and rises far above what its actual value or intrinsic value justifies, and at some point that perception of increased value dissipates, sometimes all at once, with the popping of that price bubble. So in the case of Beanie Babies, these things might cost $5 at the store. Collectors and people who bought into the beliefs of those collectors began to value some of those $5 items at far higher prices. And at some point, that belief in those higher prices disappeared. At which point folks who bought a Patty the Platypus beanie for $6,000 would have spent all that money on an asset that was only worth something like $5, if that. And if we're talking about houses or other real estate, land, commercial property, condos, whatever, bubble-era prices might cause valuations of a house to double over the course of a year, let's say. And a lot of people will buy into that frenzy, assuming and being reassured by many people involved in the same frenzy that the prices will only keep going higher from here. So you might as well get in on things now so that you only pay double what the cost used to be, rather than triple or quadruple if you wait. Buy this Beanie Baby for $6,000 today so that you have the option of selling it for more than that later. The United States saw a housing bubble of this kind back in the early 2000s. It peaked around 2006, at which point the bubble started to deflate. That deflation then served as a catalyst for the Great Recession that knocked out vast fortunes and led to the collapse of businesses and banks around the world from 2007 through about 2009, though those larger-than-usual consequences were mostly the result of a bubble-popping plus a bunch of fairly skeevy financial dealings related to what's called subprime mortgage debt. Folks packaging up and selling debt that is unlikely to be paid back but slapping a label on that debt that makes it look like better, more likely to be paid back debt. Now, after that kind of bubble pops, whether or not there's additional weirdness of the financial kind happening alongside it, amplifying it, the market tends to tilt back towards something closer to the inherent value of an asset. 
So the Beanie Babies start to be worth about $5 again, rather than thousands of dollars. This process is called a correction. And the housing market correction back in the early 2000s in the U.S. was pretty brutal, especially for the folks who bought houses at those inflated price points. A variation of this bubble happened again in the U.S. very recently, this time triggered in part by people staying at home during the early years of the COVID-19 pandemic, and consequently wanting to, in some cases, invest in a bigger or better home, since they were spending so much time there and might be doing so for the foreseeable future. It was also caused in part by very low interest rates, which were kept artificially low by the government to incentivize the economy to keep chugging along the best it could under very unusual circumstances. A lot of money was thrown at people and businesses as part of that same keep-the-economy-going effort. But keeping interest rates low tends to also encourage borrowing. And when there's cheap debt, in this case with near-zero interest rates, that makes it cheaper to buy a house with a mortgage and to invest in business expansions and to hire more people, all sorts of things of that kind. So folks wanted bigger and better homes, and debt was cheap and easy to get compared to other periods in recent history. So there was a bonanza of house buying, people and businesses wanting to take advantage of this financial situation, scooping up pretty much anything they could find. This led to a relative shortage of homes because so many people had this idea all at once, because businesses were scooping up homes to use as rentals, and because very little building was being done, both because of COVID regulations and sickness-related builder absenteeism, and because of supply chain snarls that made it nearly impossible to get lumber and other such home-building necessities, which also ballooned the prices of these sorts of commodities when they were available. More demand and ever-lessening supply, then, did what it tends to do, and prices started to leap skyward. That general collection of variables remained the same for about a year. But then, in March of 2022, two things happened that dramatically changed the math, underpinning those low interest rates and the consequent buying frenzy. First, the Federal Reserve, or Fed, the agency in the United States responsible for keeping inflation down, started to notice alarming indications of inflation, likely the consequence of all that economy boosting it had been doing up till that point. So things were starting to cost more, and that's the main thing that they are supposed to prevent from happening. And second, Russia invaded Ukraine, which added a slew of new supply chain snarls to the pandemic-related ones that were still proving troublesome. And that led to yet more inflation, but also higher prices because of that relative lack of availability, especially of raw materials and foundational commodities like oil and natural gas and wheat. This real estate bubble then which was sparking bizarre behaviors like dramatic overbidding on houses of all kinds in all sorts of places, and the dismissal of inspections and other typical aspects of the home buying process, it began to deflate. And that deflation was the consequence of those sky-high prices, putting a lot of these homes out of more people's price range. But more importantly, interest rates were beginning to tick upward as well because the Fed decided it needed to do something about that inflation issue before it became an even more serious problem. And increasing interest rates tends to slow down the economy, which in turn tends to slow down inflation. That's the main lever they have available to pull to fulfill their inflation-related obligations. 
We thus find ourselves here in the United States facing the circumstances mentioned in that Bloomberg piece. In essence, interest rates are rising historically rapidly, and home prices, which have been climbing historically rapidly in price over the past two years, but which have now plateaued, have started to crumble in price so dramatically that Morgan Stanley recently announced that they expect home prices to fall an average of 7% by the end of 2023 which isn't nearly as bad as the 27% collapse the U.S. real estate market saw between 2006 and 2012 during that aforementioned early 2000s bubble pop. But it's still quite big and could get bigger. In fact, it's already a lot bigger than that in some parts of the U.S., especially those that saw the largest and most rapid price increases over the past two years, like San Francisco, San Jose, and Seattle, which have lost an average of 8.2, 8.2, and 7.8% respectively. But other markets like Austin and Phoenix and Reno are also seeing big dips, which suggest they may also surpass that 7% drop well before the end of 2023. We are also seeing house turnover slow dramatically. The number of months required to completely turn over the market, with all available homes selling, was down to a record low of 2.1 months in January of 2022, but it's already back up to 4.1 months as of September. The suspicion is that a lot of these homes are simply overpriced, according to this new deflated dynamic. They are understandably wanting to capture the price point their home probably would have fetched mere months ago but they were a little too late to the inflated price bonanza, and now the price they're demanding is too high, and their demands may be too steep, and their homes might not sell because potential buyers might not want to pay those now higher interest rates on their mortgage. There's also a golden handcuffs effect coming into play. Basically, folks who bought in the previous paradigm where interest rates were low are paying a mortgage on their current house that is super low, while current mortgage rates, because the Fed has goosed those interest rates so rapidly, are far, far higher. So if they were to sell their current home and buy a new one, their monthly cost, even for a relatively smaller, less good house, might be higher than what they're paying now, because they would have a mortgage based on current interest rates, not the earlier, very low interest rates that they've locked in. And for folks outside the United States where this is not common, this is a thing because in the U.S., most people end up with a locked-in interest rate for the duration of their mortgage. It's not something that changes monthly or even yearly or every couple of years. Now that, in turn, is reducing the amount of housing available on the market, which is amplifying another issue, that there's little housing, especially lower-priced housing, available pretty much everywhere in the United States than has been the case for quite a long time. So this is a crisis in that a lot of people have bought house-shaped beanie babies at too high a price, and now those price tags, those presumed values of their assets have dropped, which represents a loss for those buyers. That's part of the crisis. This housing bubble, though, as I mentioned, is melding with that larger, longer-lasting housing crisis in the U.S. defined by insufficient housing available overall and insufficient affordable housing in particular. There are economic benefits to building just expensive stuff rather than affordable stuff, and this dearth is at the root of a lot of homelessness, a lot of brain drain for cities, and a lot of people opting for rentals rather than buying homes, which in turn means fewer people have housing-related assets. 
So basically, there are fewer opportunities for folks to climb from one economic class to another through the acquisition of this type of asset, if they choose to do so. That underlying not-enough-homes-being-built issue is often called the housing gap. And in the U.S., in 2021, we were lacking about 7 million affordable rental homes that are in the price range of folks making around minimum wage. And in some markets, that's primarily the consequence of a lack of affordable land upon which to build said homes. And in some cases, it's down to regulations like zoning restrictions, or the cost of building materials or construction, or local interest groups often referred to as NIMBYs for not in my backyard, who want to protect their own real estate value by preventing the construction of lower-income housing nearby, which they believe, with some historical justification, might negatively impact their home's market value. This gap is expected to increase as more historic-scale natural disasters, like the recent Hurricane Ian, which devastated entire cities in Florida, most of the homes there not insured or not sufficiently insured to be rebuilt, as those types of disasters plow through heavily populated portions of the planet. A lot of homes will be wiped out as previously rare events of this kind become more common, and that'll mean less housing available especially since the construction industry is still moving at such a relatively glacial pace in many of these same locations. And the ability of people to rebuild in these locations while still being covered by insurance is increasingly in question. None of these issues stand apart from the others. They are all interconnected in various ways, and none of them have simple solutions, because although it's easy to say, let's just build more homes, that doesn't mean the variables influencing housing prices will play ball, and it doesn't mean the folks in the position to do such building will be willing to take time away from more lucrative construction projects to do so, that those who own the land will allow it to be used for those purposes, or that the regulations in the relevant areas will allow them to build such properties in the first place, much less in a reasonable amount of time. These are issues many countries are dealing with right now, with some countries, like the UK, bracing for impending changes to their mortgage rates, most of which are variable compared to the mostly locked-in rates here in the US, which means as the interest rates go up in the UK, so does the amount of money the average British homeowner will have to pay each month which can be devastating to one's budget. That is a huge change. But this overall shift in the real estate market globally is partly down to how we finance and value homes, and partly the consequence of all the disruptions that we're seeing globally caused by the pandemic, by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and by the many interconnected energy and commodity-related shortages that have stemmed from both. <music> The book I'd like to recommend today is called I Never Thought of It That Way by Monica Guzman. And I really enjoyed this book, especially for this moment right now, because it was written by somebody who's part of an organization that's all about partisan depolarization and getting people to talk and have real discussions and finding common ground, even in circumstances where some aspect of their politics or ideology might lead them to otherwise discount the person on the other end of that conversation. And this is not to say that I think, or the author of this book thinks, 
that you shouldn't have strong opinions and beliefs and shouldn't act on those beliefs and vote accordingly and live accordingly. But it does mean, and this is something that I tend to believe, that we tend to benefit more if we can find common ground. And we can still scrap it out when it comes to politics and still do what we can to support things that we care about, even if other people don't care about those same things. But being able to find ways to work together on other stuff where we have that common ground allows us to still make sure the bridges don't fall apart and that we can move forward in terms of making sure that people live better lives. And basically any place where we can find a common grain of belief or desired outcomes, figuring out what those things are and then figuring out ways to make that happen, even as we continue to debate the other things hopefully in increasingly productive ways because of that shared respect that we might develop for one another because of those things that we're able to work together on. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of I Never Thought of It That Way by Monica Guzman. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of all of my work, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and pretty much all of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.